welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Comero, and it is officially Carolina Week. So I am joined once again, same as last episode, by Andrew Clark. He is uh, hanging out with me, acting as a soundboard of sorts. Uh, he is absolutely encouraged to chime in anytime he wants. I'll be throwing some questions at him. And everyone else, just so you know, I encourage everyone to reach out to me if you're interested in doing the same. I've gotten a couple emails recently. The last podcast, I actually forgot to give the email. So some, some people actually had to like hunt me down. They found my Twitter account, so it is Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail. Very simple, Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail. You can be involved as you want to be. This is kind of a uh, test run th- this year to see if I can get someone permanent for next year. This is not a test run for the podcast. I've been doing this for God knows how long, uh, like seven years. But uh, yeah, I, I just I can't talk to computers anymore. I want it to be fun. I, you again, you'll be as involved as you want to be. I am. At least I consider myself really, really easy to work with as long as the communication's there. All right, so uh, let's get started. Duke, they, uh, the, I guess the big thing, two wins, that's obviously the most important. And uh, Duke is now 19-3 and three overall, 9-2 and two in the conference. As I mentioned last pod, if they had won both games, Coach K would be going for his, uh, he would have won his 500th career ACC game against Boston College that occurred and it was a little uh closer a little closer than uh some of us had hoped or pretty much all of us had hoped but either way got the job done and one more thing about the pod I actually uh, over the years at the end of the season like uh the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament I do previews I do every single game after the games but before that I'd kind of done once a week every other game this year because I was kind of testing out some people at different times uh, as co-hosts and just kind of I don't know either way I recorded about six games in a row and it wasn't like I felt like I had enough time to really get my thoughts together so it didn't come off as an overreaction to me and I kind of like to keep keep that rolling I I feel like I'm in a good rhythm so even like missing the Q's game like I'll talk about Q's and BC but the fact that we have to do two games, it almost makes me feel like I'm a little bit behind. So that's just another reason. Anyone who's interested, reach out to me, Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail, so uh, I can do these things every after every single game because, hey, that's that's part of the fun, just kind of hearing that instant reaction, or if not instant, at least next day. All right, uh, so uh, first, a couple off-court that is uh, just as important as on-court, to be honest, uh, John Shire. As I assume many know, he had to have an emergency appendectomy the morning of the Syracuse game. He had that in New York from what's been reported. He is doing okay. He is recovering in Durham. I believe he is not going to be able to be at the Carolina game. Don't quote me on that, but I believe that's what's been reported right now. But he is going to be okay. Uh, Nolan Smith, he his daughter Cameron, uh, she had to go to the hospital, so he and his wife stayed in Durham with her when Duke traveled to uh, Syracuse. Corey Alexander, who was doing the uh, color commentary that game, he said uh, she was better, and now Nolan was actually under the weather, but n- not in bad shape at all. But either way, both uh, John Shire and Nolan Smith, they are uh, recovering Nolan a lot more because it was just, a, I don't know, it wasn't much. And John, hopefully very soon, he will be back on the bench. But, hey, that's a big deal. And I'm a big players guy, but... At the same time, missing two coaches, that affects things. It absolutely affects things, especially with sports, which can be as much of a routine 
as anything. All right, so uh, Andrew, for these two games, what are some quick overall takeaways you have for uh, how Duke looked from one game to the next against Syracuse and then against BC? Um, the games are pretty different. Obviously, Syracuse was kind of an offensive explosion. Um, some of that goes to the free throw shooting. We shot 87% from the line on, I think it was like 33 attempts. Um, and then BC, obviously, was kind of opposite of that. The offense really wasn't there. And some of that comes from Kerry just not having quite as dominant of a game, which I guess we kind of are relying on at this point. Um, defensively, Cuse, obviously we, I mean, it was a foul fest on both sides. We fouled them a whole lot, letting them get inside and then just getting them to the line a lot. Um, BC, it was better defensively, but they both teams did attack Matthew Hurt and just our bigs overall. And I think that just continues to be a problem. All right. So I'll give a couple quick things before I go more specific on Syracuse. I would say uh, BC is actually, since that just occurred, it's actually getting pretty damn close to my projected go-to lineup uh, for Duke that I declared after the 2K Classic back in November, actually. The only difference, well, first let me just say it was Trey. It was uh, Wendell Moore at the four, which I've been begging for all season, or at least while he was in. Uh, there was Vern at center and Joey Baker at the three. So who was at the two? Not my dude Cassius, though. It was actually Jordan Goldwire, which was a very, very interesting uh, decision by Kay, which I'll speak on more um, as we talk about BC. But I think the big thing, my takeaway from these two games is Syracuse, I mean, you can't actually replicate what the carrier dome is like. It's insane. Was it like 33,000 people? It is, everyone's going ballistic. I think like the record for like most fans at a game, at least from what I've seen, I'm pretty sure. I mean, it's like all Sir- all Syracuse games at, at that exact arena or dome. And it's, it's just wild. So there's so much energy and you just can't help but be hyped up. Like it's just natural. So then after that, you go to BC. I would say typically when Duke, no matter where they play, if it's a road game, fans are going to come out. It's Duke, as well as Duke fans traveling to wherever. I didn't really, it was a little bit, I don't want to say dead, but it wasn't kind of, I thought, I thought especially with the game as close as it was, I, I didn't think uh, the fans were as into it, or at least it wasn't as uh, noisy or enthusiastic as I thought it could have been and what I've heard in the past. So I'm not sure what exactly the reason for that is. But bottom line, it was two very different environments, two very different uh, quality teams. I mean, I, I say BC, if they, I mean, Winston Tabs, if they had him all year, I think that had a big effect. Like when, when Derek Thornton transferred to BC, he wanted to pair up with Winston Tabs in the backcourt. That dude's a baller. And unfortunately, he had to have surgery on his knee in September. I believe it's the same knee he injured it uh, last year, about halfway through the season. And from what I've heard, he is, he should be good to go by next year. But at the same time, Derek Thornton only gets one year accused, and it's just it's a shame. And then Nick Popovich, he's been out for a while. He just came back. He's kind of getting back into it, but it's only like his third game back. He was out for a while. So BC, they have had some tough times. It's pretty much all been on 
Derek Thornton. Then you get uh, another huge thing. Anyone who's listened to my pods over the years knows I pretty much just mock all the stupid cliches. I'm sure that I've even used some of them at times, and hey, I'll I'll accept that if, if I have. But at the same time, I think most of them are useless. So I actually uh, put my, my uh, tweet yesterday. Over the years, the only time I've ever given legit credence to the term trap game is when Duke's a heavy road favorite before the first UNC matchup of the season. So that's exactly what occurred against uh, Boston College, and especially with the one-and-done guys who've never, who've never faced UNC before. Andrew, let me ask you, do, how do you feel? Because I'm always like, stop being the armchair psychologist. Stop trying to, like see like body language and try to analyze body language. This is basketball. Like let's not try to pretend we know what's going on in these players' heads. At the same time for me, this is one of those rare occasions when I mean, I feel like it's almost like uh they came down with the James Taylor disease. They had uh, Carolina in their mind. So, would you agree with that? Do you think that played an effect on Boston College because I'm close to almost saying that a lot of aspects from the game I wouldn't even worry about because I think it was just they were thinking about Carolina. No, I agree. I mean, they looked sloppy at times, but yeah, about the Carolina thing, I mean, how would you not look forward to Carolina, especially your first year playing at Duke? Um, I mean, players have said that's part of why they come to Duke is to play in that environment. I mean, you see it every year growing up as a kid, and you're just, I mean, you can't help but be stoked to be in that arena regardless of regardless of whether Carolina is having a great year or down year, it's still going to get you all excited. And that's what everybody's talking about on social media. And even just on campus, I'm sure that they're hearing about it before the, before the Boston college game even happens. Yeah. I mean, to those players, it's, it's kind of ingrained in them. Once they get on campus, like this is what it's all about. And I I think uh, there's nowhere near, I don't think there's any of, of the sort of, hate that I've never quite understood. I, I mean, when I, when I, when I watch and root for sports and everything, like I want to beat rivals. I've never understood the hate, but I understand a hundred percent that I am in the minority there. So, um, but either way, I, the players, I mean, they hang out with each other. They, uh, they, they, they date, uh, girls or whoever from the other school and they get along really well. I think it's the fans that, uh, make it into more of a, uh, kind of hate thing now but either way I I just think with Syracuse the energy is just naturally there then Boston College almost felt dead and now like Carolina it's going to be huge again I I do think BC that's as close as I'll ever say that's a trap game and uh yeah they, they they played like it bottom line they played like it all the things that Duke has trouble with they showed up because I just think the focus wasn't quite quite there do I know that? Can I read their minds? No. So this is me being a hypocrite, going against everything I usually do to analyze basketball and say, I think, you know what? Those are just human beings acting like human beings to me. So that that is something you won't hear me say much, but I think that was as much of the human element as anything else going on, even though there was some stuff that we will talk about. All right, so Cuse. That was... Uh, 97 points, the most road points they've scored in an ACC game since 2002. That was uh, February 2nd at Clemson, 2002. Tied for most points in a half 
uh, this season with 57 in the second half with uh, Central Arkansas. They scored that exact same amount in the first half. They have uh, scored 50 points and a half three times this season. Miami first half was the other besides Central Arkansas and Cuse. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, there was a lot of points. I think that had a lot to do with just the fact that it was a never-ending trip to the foul line, which, like, the last 10 minutes of the game, except for a couple plays, like, it got to the point where I kind of, <laughs> I almost, like, lost focus watching. It was not, the first, like, 30 minutes of the game, uh, first half and 10 minutes, like, it was super exciting. And then it's just, like, they kept heading to the line, and, hey, I, I don't know. It just, it stopped the flow kind of left. So Vern, he shot Duke's first four free throws, made two. Then uh, he went six of six with the team shooting 27 of 29. Trey was 10 of 10 for the rest of the game. So for a team that has struggled at times with free throws in a really, really tough environment to play in, uh, in a dome, which some people incorrectly believe causes uh, players and teams to shoot really poorly it's been proven that's incorrect but there is still kind of that belief from for some I, I think that was really impressive some things i thought stuck out hughes they extended the top of their zone a lot farther out than i've seen from those teams in the past i have i'll be honest i haven't seen Hughes much this season i pretty much stuck with duke until teams play them which is very unlike i mean i used to cover everything now it's just i'm all duke all the way and so I would assume Cuse has been doing this all season, but, but it's the first time I saw it. So I was surprised how far extended out they had their zone. And in my opinion, that actually helped Duke because when a team extends out farther, like past the three-point line, what is that going to cause? You're not going to be able to shoot threes. So Duke, they have struggled at times. or not struggled. They have almost kind of, to their detriment, settled for threes way too much so this actually made them unable to settle for threes it actually forced them to put the ball on the floor and you think against a zone you're going to usually have that guy at the nail the free throw line you're going to either have him there for the triple threat to catch uh and then shoot pass and uh or dribble or you're going to have someone flashing to the zone. That's actually when Zion got injured last year in the second game. I believe that was at Q's. Um, in the first half, Duke struggled. And then the second half, it was a good adjustment by Kay. He had Trey flashing to the free throw line a lot. And that really helped uh, kind of liven things up, liven up the offense. So I thought that helped. But in this game, I didn't see really they, – they really weren't using anyone at the nail. Vern was actually – he did a good job against Cal. Cal played all zone. He did a good job at the nail, the free throw line there. But for this game, it really wasn't even necessary because Duke was actually able to get dribble penetration against that zone, which usually doesn't occur much against a zone. So I thought that really helped Duke. Is that something you saw and, and felt helped Duke against Cuse? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think the biggest reason you'd extend a zone out like that is to prevent ball reversals, which, I mean, we've talked about how little Duke moves the ball at times, so it's, it doesn't really take away a lot that Duke does. And then, like you said, it just opened them up to dribble penetration and allowed us to get inside the lane and then make decisions from there. Yeah, and I mean, exactly. I think assist percentage is really one of the most overrated stats in basketball. I think it's just there's so much context involved there, and I think people harp on it way too much. But I think it is more valid when it comes to the zone. 
because when assessing offense against zone, it's just really, really hard for one person to beat a zone, to, to ISO against a zone. I mean, you look at Duke's stats after the game, they didn't even have any attempts from ISO, which they usually have a bunch. And, uh, yeah, again, unless it's like at the nail, at the free throw line, making plays from the triple threat. And there's a reason Syracuse ranks last in the country and last, I mean, it's not last in terms of bad, but it's just last in terms of defensive assist rate. It's just a product of their zone. They came into the game allowing assists on 74.2% of made shots against them and an absurd 77.1% in the ACC. So uh, Duke's first half assist percentage, it was it was 73, which was right around that level. The second half assist percentage, 8 for 16. That's it. I, kind of zoned, I kind of almost like zoned out in the second half a little bit. I guess they tried to... I saw a, a, a little more, but either way, they scored a bunch of points. I think it's just kind of that free throw fest. So I, I, I really wouldn't take that yeah, stat to mean too much. Uh, were you about to say? I was just going to say, I think some of those shots that um, that wouldn't be off assist are just offensive rebounds. So, I mean, it almost seems more extreme when you factor in that. That's a great point. And the zone gives up plenty of offensive rebounds. It's one of the main uh, weaknesses potentially of the zone. Cuse, they came into the game. I mean, this is a big thing about just what a team does well. After before a game, you look at what a team does well and where you're gonna, what you do well, what you're gonna have to do. And I mean, when I say you, obviously I don't play for Duke, but what uh, what Duke can do to beat um, uh, the other team, the opponent, can they actually try to match up with what the opponent does well? So either way, Syracuse came into the game allowing. 50.7% three-point rate in ACC play. That means 50% of the field goals their opponents attempt are from three because of that zone. That's a lot. So Duke, they attempted 31.7. That's huge. If you remember that first game last year against Cuse when uh, the legs died, they were just all they took was threes. So that's a big deal. 50.7% Syracuse allows they're just hoping opponents chuck, and Duke only attempted 31.5%. So they weren't settling. That's huge against a zone. So the point percentage allowed coming in. Syracuse from three, they allowed 41%, ranked number two in the country. Duke, they scored 18.6% of their points from deep. So again, that's a, it goes the opposite of what Syracuse wants you to do. Syracuse, two-point uh, two defense. The point percentage allowed, 41.7%. Ranked 345, uh, and there's 353 teams for anyone who uh, wants to be reminded of that. Duke, they scored 51.5% of their points from two-point range, so 10% more. So they're doing exactly what Syracuse does not want you to do. Duke is not relying on threes. They are scoring close to the rim. Free throw, uh, the free throw point percentage, 17.3 for Syracuse, ranked number 238. Duke, they scored 29.9% of the points from the line. So, yeah, these aren't some, like, advanced analytics. This is just showing that Duke, they did exactly what Syracuse doesn't want you to do, which is great. I mean, that's absolutely the the, the thing. If you want to concentrate on what Duke did best against Syracuse, that is what happened. So the question is, was that because they were getting post-ups? Generally, no. I mean, there are a couple, but... I think uh, most of them – okay, let me ask you, um, um, Andrew, if you were going to get the ball inside to a player against a zone, uh, from your experience or your opinion, what is the best way to do that? 
Um, I mean, if you are able to get the ball to the nail, you can always do kind of a high-low, or I do think it's the short corner is always a little bit of a weak spot in the zone. If you have a player that's able to step out even just a little bit beyond that block, that's a good way as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of you can beat the zone at the nail or from the corner. That's absolutely right. But in terms of getting the ball inside, I will say over the top is generally going to be the way to do it, especially against that Syracuse zone, especially against the way they were kind of extending it out a little more. So usually with the big to big, you you have it from straight on above the break. What I saw Duke do that I loved, that I absolutely loved, because I haven't seen it much uh, um, this year, is from the wings. They, they were throwing a lot of passes over the top from the wings and getting their inside guys to seal off so they wouldn't actually have to get position as much as just get a quick seal and use the defensive aggressive the defender's aggressiveness against them because usually the defender is actually going to try to come around and front them because uh, the way the zone is positioned. So I thought, especially with Duke, one of the big weaknesses this season, which is almost unacceptable, is just the god-awful entry passes whether it's accuracy, whether it's the, the post player not getting good position or keeping position or sealing off, whether it's bad angles. It's been all of it. It's been all of it at different times, many times at the same time. Against Syracuse, I thought it was great. Cassius, man, he had, he had some beautiful passes over the top. I mean, Javin and O'Connell, they even worked one where it was just, I mean, these were some really good-looking plays they ran, um, even pick and roll, which can be hard against the zone. If you run it from the corners or the wings, it's, it's possible to, to do it that way and take advantage of the way the zone is set up. I mean, Cassius, some, like there was an example of uh, Matthew Hurt. He used the defender's, uh, Cassius used the defender's aggressiveness against him. It was only a couple minutes in and went over the top to Hurt. Hurt scored at the rim from the post. When you can get Hurt a bucket in the post, Hey, that, that's great. And what Cassius did, he didn't kind of lob it in. He actually fired it in, which goes against what you usually do with kind of a, a high-low or a pass over the top. But Cassius, he really fired it in there. But then uh, on another play later in the half, he did lob it up to Javin, where Javin, he kind of raised his arm as inside players do when, when they want the ball and kind of just lofted up there, allowed Javin to get it, allowed Javin to make the play. So two different circumstances. The first, it was really Cassius. I know a lot of people, they would probably see the play and say, oh, great seal by Hurt. But it was actually right when the defender came around is exactly when Cassius threw the ball. So that's what I mean by using the defender's aggressiveness against him. So he basically made the play for Hurt. And with Javin, he just allowed Javin to make a play uh, on his own. Just, you just got to give him an opportunity. Trey, Trey has sometimes, at least from what I've seen, he doesn't trust the inside guys enough to just kind of give him a chance sometimes. And he did. He did with Vern. He kind of just threw it up there, allowed Vern to go get it, and took advantage of that zone defense. So that's what I thought was really, really the most impressive thing I saw about Duke's offense in terms of the way they did not settle for threes, and they did a great job entering passes and allowing their bigs to do work. Because if you see the actual stats on the post-up, it ends up being, I think, eight possessions, 16 points, seven of seven field goals. I mean, it looks like they just dominated. So you're thinking, oh, they just kind of threw it inside and allowed the bigs to work. No, this is something they had to actually scheme out. And I thought they did a great job. The only time 
I think I remember an actual post-up was O'Connell from the left wing. He threw it into Tavern, who kind of spun to his left and was actually able to make a post move. That might have been the only one, though. So most of the other times was on a seal or, as you mentioned, um, offensive rebounds, getting second chances and doing work there. So I was uh, I was really impressed with the offense against Syracuse, especially considering that uh, it was kind of they didn't have Vern for uh, for certain periods of time. And when you don't have Vern, I mean, you mentioned how much they rely on Vern. I've mentioned it plenty of times. What is your offense going to look like? They found a way, and I think zone actually helps this Duke team. I'm not sure how it would have worked against uh, man, or maybe we did see it against Boston College, and it wasn't pretty. Alex O'Connell had a big effect against Syracuse. How do you? How? What was your opinion about uh, the way O'Connell played? Um, I think overall he had a really solid game. I mean, defensively, I don't think he had lapses. We've kind of become accustomed to him having. Um, whether that's just Syracuse's offense being more matchup based than one on one in a lot of cases, um, whatever for, but for whatever reason, he did a pretty good job that way. And then offensively, obviously just providing spacing. And I think he's so important to Duke's ball movement. Um, he's one of the few players that in that game that would really just catch it and immediately reverse it. There's a lot of times there was a tendency for other guys to, catch it and dribble the ball or catch it and hold it, but he's pretty good at just immediately releasing that ball. Yeah, I think a big reason for uh, O'Connell over Baker was O'Connell's ability to create for others. Because, uh, I mean, it is what it is. O'Connell struggled with his shot this season. He struggled with his – I mean, the interesting thing is you look at his uh, career and uh, the last uh, – I think he only played a couple minutes. It was like nine minutes against Cuse in the ACC tournament. I believe that was a semifinal or quarterfinal. And I think he actually was like one for one from three, but really didn't do much. But the two games before that last year, the two regular season games, he actually had huge roles. And he he uh, he lit it up. And O'Connell against the zone has been something where, you, I mean, he's someone who you would hope would be able to provide an impact from deep. I, I was saying before the game, we're thinking that, Either O'Connell or Baker is going to need to hit some to kind of soften up that zone. And it really wasn't necessary because of the way that they were able to slash in and create. And O'Connell did a fantastic job. I mean, he had one play where he slashed right into the lane and uh, dished off to Javin. It was just tremendous. And a, a very underrated thing I did see also was just a little kind of it, – it's, it's barely noticeable – but when you're driving against that zone, just a little kind of ball fake, one way or the other, a little pass fake, that can get the defense leaning and just totally open everything up. And I thought Duke was really good at that. All the players who would drive, Wendell Moore did a great job at that. Trey did a great job at that. I think they all did a great job of just little fakes, little hesitations to get that zone off balance. All right, so at the same time, Syracuse does they had no match. They they had no matchup for Vern. Pittsburgh had no matchup for Vern and as uh, we'll talk about BC had no matchup for Vern. So, we're back to kind of the point of I guess it was uh before Georgia Tech because there was a stretch of Georgia Tech, Clemson and Louisville that Vern had some struggles. But before that, he was playing against guys and teams that he could just dominate. He's just bigger. I mean, sometimes it's that simple, and 
I, I mean, it's almost not worth overanalyzing. It's just, hey, credit him for being able to dominate teams he should. It's the same way as, like, for a team. You say, hey, beat the teams. You should take care of business is almost the cliche. So uh, Vern has way more often than not done that. I still, I mean, I mean, if the, if it's based on just kind of stats, I don't know. I guess uh, Vern is uh, kind of that national player of the year consideration type. But at the same time, I would love to see, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping he can really have that game against a player who can match up with him physically and athletically and just really see him rise up to the challenge. That's going to, uh, man, if I see that, it's going to make me so happy because so far this season, I mean, just looking at it objectively, I, I did, uh, I, I remember that Georgia Tech part, I went over Every single matchup he's faced, which has been an, an opponent, a big, that could po- possibly pose a uh, a threat. I mean, whether it's um, – uh, oh, my God. I'm gonna, well, um, yeah, Azubuki. I'm sorry. Yeah, Azubuki, whether it's uh, Yurt 7 for uh, Georgetown um, and, uh, the th- and the three teams I had mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, I want to see him really step up against a challenge like that. But at the same time, these teams are just, they're all over him. They're doubling him, and he's still hes still coming through. He did a good job with the offensive rebounds. I mean, this three-game stretch, he's had something like 6'5 five, and 5 offensive rebounds. That's huge. That's absolutely yeah. huge. So I'm not trying to take away from anything he's done. He, Vern, has been fantastic. I want to make that very clear. Because it almost sounds like I'm trying to say, like, eh, he's not that great. He is fantastic. But you think about the possibilities of uh, down the line. I mean, even right now, with Duke, they are going to go up against um, Armando Backup. And, I mean, Garrison Brooks, he's uh, skinny. He's athletic. He's like 6'11", but I think it'll likely be more back on. But either way, I mean, that's a guy that at least physically can pose a challenge. I'm not saying he's equal in terms of skill level, but he'll pose a challenge. So with Vern, I am I am really, really excited at the potential of him, of him really having a big game against someone who can match up with him like that. And that, at least to me, not like I'm anyone who needs, who he needs to prove anything to. But that would show me a lot because right now he's just dominated the uh, the opponents he should dominate and and uh, good for him. There's no there's no reason to take anything away from him from that. Um, do you have anything else to add in terms of uh, Vern? I mean, and I just want to make again very clear, Vern has been freaking awesome. So I just want to make that clear. Is there anything else you want to add in terms of what you've seen from Vern lately and uh, what you hope for or just what you expect or any anything deeper about Vern? Uh, I do agree. It would be awesome to see him go up against the big matchup and really just go dominate one of those matchups. Um, like you said, we haven't really seen it, but I do think against Syracuse it was important to just see there was a little more fire in his eyes at a few times. I mean, obviously he got that one tech that deserved or not. I mean, is that, is that on the stat sheet, fire in the eyes? What's that? <laughs> I was just messing with it. I said, is that oh, on the stat sheet, fire in the eyes? I just love the cliches. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I mean, it I is. I apologize, man. I'm just messing with it. Yeah. I mean, it is a little bit of a cliche, but, I mean, he yelled in the guy's face once, and, I mean, I just like to, I like to see that a little bit and just asserting himself. 
And, yeah, they didn't really have anybody to match up against them, but there were a few times he scored where there was legitimately three guys trying to stop him. I mean, so anytime you do that, you're obviously being impressive. But, yeah, like you said, those one-on-one matchups against bigger guys, it's kind of a wait and see. Just a real quick a couple more things to add against Syracuse. Syracuse from deep, they made two of their last three um, in the kind of the closing minutes. So before that, I mean, four of uh, 23. It's again, I mean, Duke's three-point defense is crazy. Like, it's getting to the point where it's crazy. I, I mean, the two games you could say that they uh, the percentage has been up. Louisville, I think they, they actually went like five for five in the first half. And then Duke shot him down in the second. And I believe Georgia Tech went something like five for eight in the first half. And then Duke shut him down in the second half. And, I mean, they, they lost both of those games. So, oh, I'm sorry, Clemson, not Georgia Tech. Um, but, and they lost both of those games. So it's obviously not like uh, it didn't have any effect. But at the same time, they, uh, they, they made an adjustment. And there hasn't been any team. That's really shot well against Duke from deep, both halves. And Syracuse, that's what they do. They shoot a ton from deep. They don't score inside. I mean, uh, Sidibe, um, I mean, he plays, I mean, you're lucky to get 20 minutes out of him. He's very foul prone. I mean, he's a guy I think they were hoping would be able to be like a defensive stopper against a guy like Vern. But he's just, y- y- you take what you can get from him if you're a Syracuse fan. I, I think, yeah, Duke, again, great job on threes. Another another thing, I will say when you have when you have Matthew Hurd and Alex O'Connell playing big minutes, the thing to watch is like what their opponents are doing. And you're right, they, like there was no like huge lapses, but at the same time, I have never seen Marek Dolazaj and Buddy Beheim so aggressive off the bounce. <laughs> because I mean, Buddy Beheim, he's basically a catch and shoot guy, and Marek Dolazaj, I uh, not made fun of him. I kind of joked about him in the preseason ACC preview that him and Nate Lazuski, they should just kind of hang out together and just like eat scoops of weight gainer because both of them are kind of pencils. If you haven't seen Nate Lazuski when Duke plays uh, Notre Dame, he uh, he weighs he's, he's like six eleven. I think he weighs like fifty pounds. Like so, like and Marek Dolazaj. I mean, he is kind of a pencil as well. And I mean, no disrespect by that, but uh, yeah. He is not someone who's generally going to bully anyone, and uh, he somehow did <laughs> to Matthew Hurd. He kind of bullied him a couple times. Dolezal was super aggressive. Buddy Beheim was as well making plays. Uh, so it's just something to keep in mind, as well as yeah. what you said. Uh, Syracuse was absolutely attacking Hurt as much as possible. If you want to know who is going to be more likely to attack when they're both on the floor at the same time, Vern or Hurt, I've seen it a couple times, especially like Louisville as well, like, it's going to be hurt. Who's attacked more often? Yep. Right. Um, I, they, I was just going to say the Dolzhai attacking the basket so much. It did. It kind of reminded me who was on MSU last year in the final four that just started attacking from the wing. I can't remember his name. Um, but anyways, just a player that wasn't, wasn't really expected to do that and just kept going off the bounce. Uh, it just, it just felt like, just felt like it was a player playing really against a lot of his skill set, but yeah. All right, and uh, Wendell Moore. I, 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 was the, uh, I was the one saying, hey, you probably want to ease him back in because being in shape and being in game shape is very different. Yeah, so I'm an idiot. Duke did not ease him back in. He was, he's in there right away. Wendell Moore, and immediately with his five turnovers, 
And uh, welcome back, Wendell. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, you got to accept. I mean, the turnovers are going to come with Wendell Moore. But, I mean, you, you see what he brings. He brings another playmaker, another guy who can create. And that's huge. That is absolutely huge. So, and, and you know what's crazy is Wendell Moore, he has, I mean, immediately when I first saw some video clips from high school, I was like, oh, no, this this, this dude shoots with his elbow in. Like, that's going to be a problem. I mean, unless he had fixed it in the offseason, turned out he didn't. And you don't want to mess with somebody's shooting motion in season. But it can be ever-changing. And how whatever it is, like Mike Bibby, he kind of shot at times with his elbow in. As long as, I mean, the big thing with a shot, with a motion and a release, is, is just repetition. People can shoot it infinitely different ways. I mean, people, like, I, they, they were like, Steph Curry, he has such a weird motion. It doesn't matter. As long as you repeat it every the same way every single time, that's the big thing. Way more important than anything else. When Elmore doesn't do that, so it's kind of, you never know how it's going to be. Sometimes it can look pretty, and he hit a uh, catch-and-shoot um, three-pointer from the right wing, which was beautiful. And I was like, oh, my God. So that's uh, – if hopefully he can get that uh, motion worked out with his elbow. I mean, that's something where, like, NBA scouts, like, that's what we're hoping for. So it's a good thing. Cassius, career high five assists, big deal. Um, and uh, Javin Delorier, he's just – I mean, J- Javin's a dude. He – in both games. As we, move, as we move to Boston College, Javin was just so important in both games. The only thing, I mean, when he committed a third foul in the first half, just stupidly going over the top, or not stupidly, but just you got to be smarter about that to uh, pick up his third foul with Vern already in foul trouble. Not smart, but, I mean, that. besides that, everything was just peak Javin in terms of being that alpha glue guy. Just fantastic. Everything about Javin was everything I kind of I'm just so high on and what I have never understood I mean Twitter is just a kind of a haven of negativity for everyone but I think there's just a weird thing the Javin hate has never made sense to me he's kind of a guy that I I honestly do not think he will ever get his due from the majority until he's gone he does so much for Duke so much all right so uh BC um, I mean, I gave my, my opinion in terms of uh, just kind of the environment. I think that was a, a, had played a huge part, had a huge effect. But besides that, you look at no Baker versus Q's. And uh, against Pittsburgh, I worried that like Baker, it was the first time I'd seen him kind of look like he pushed a shot. And it made me wonder if he was kind of thinking about getting uh, getting the quick pull by K, which has happened a lot this season too much in my opinion and whether it's affecting him mentally because I'd always said like Baker he plays kind of freer than everyone him and Cassius Cassius is the alpha which is funny I've kind of seen that around more lately with uh, Duke fans I've kind of I've said that since like the beginning of the year he is the he's the alpha there's there was never a doubt about that in terms of like how he closes second halves I mean he did that against uh, Cuse I didn't even mention that I mean especially oh the, I, I gotta mention the, the Vern uh, as the Super Bowl was coming, it, or wait a minute, was that after the Super Bowl or before the game? I don't even know. Was that? Um, I think it was. Uh, I can't remember. Honestly, can't remember. Wow, everything blends together. Anyway, um, yeah. so uh, yeah, so I mean, Vern, he just, I mean, it was. Uh, I think uh, Elijah Hughes, and and one more thing, when Wendell Moore, great defense on Elijah Hughes, great defense. That Duke and Ball, great defense. Um, but uh, I think Wendell got a piece of it. And Vern caught it and just 
that long kind of windmill lefty heave down to Cassius and he, the way he caught it in traffic just totally off balance regained it and made Cassius is he, he that dude has special special ability but I will always always make sure to say he's a basketball player not an athlete he is a basketball player he's an athlete not an athlete who's a basketball player and that is the same thing I said about Zion to me that the way you order that matters a lot at least to me because I think to say oh it's an athlete who plays basketball it just comes off totally different Cassius is fantastic and yeah so anyway he's like he's like Alpha and Baker he plays free so I've kind of, I really have wanted to see those guys together for so long. I've made that very clear. It always seems like just when they're about to get some legit time together, it never happens. And first it was that like, it would always, uh, Kay would pair uh, Cassius up with Alex O'Connell and, uh, and Baker would be separate. Now it's very interesting because if you actually look at, the on-off stats. I don't. I, I try. I don't. I try to avoid bringing on-off stats up on the podcast because small sample context. Everything matters. Everything matters. You can't just say, "Oh, the like the the team was better at this point for like five minutes." Like, what does that mean? But I, I put Cassius, Goldwire, and Baker all together. So in terms of when they play together, when one of them played with the other two, all all that. So. I was I was looking down. I mean, Cassius off, Goldwire on, Baker on, nine minutes. Cassius on, uh, Goldwire off, Baker off. That was twelve and a half minutes. That was actually two uh, two of Duke's best lineups right there. Crazy net efficiency. Then you go to, you go down in terms of uh, who's playing with who, who's off, and you get to the bottom and Cassius on, Goldwire off, Baker on, nothing. So that's very interesting. I really would love to see what happens when it's just the same exact lineup that I had kind of projected in terms of Trey, Cassius, Baker, Wendell, and Vern, but not Goldwire. And it's no disrespect to Goldwire. And it's interesting because if you look at uh, the net efficiency, and I know some people just want to know points, um, with Cassius off, Goldwire on, and Baker on. The team uh, outscored BC, Duke outscored BC 20 to 13. And the net efficiency was 46.27. And the off so what that means, the offense efficiency was 132. That's insane. The defensive efficiency was 85.92. That's also really good. So the difference between the two, 46.27, really good. For anyone who just wants the points, they outscored them 20 to 13. The interesting thing is, Cassius on, Goldwire off, and Baker off, so it was just Cassius. They also, Duke also outscored BC 20 to 13. The net efficiency was 31.22, so it's a little less. So the defense was insane, 57.98. That's like world record defense. So it's much better than even the great 85.92. And I'm, I, I'll stop going over just random numbers. I know this kind of just seems like. Charlie Brown's parents or whatever to some people with me rambling off numbers. So I'll make this quick. But the offense was 89.21. Not great. You know what it was probably missing? It was probably missing Baker because that's what the difference was. In terms of somebody who can create and somebody who can really shoot. So that was very interesting to me how Kay never gave 
that chance. And I'm not sure what the deal is because I think it works. I mean, that lineup, which I keep saying, that's what I would love to see. The five players I keep mentioning, I just I, I don't feel like it's happened much. And I'll have to look up those stats and see exactly how much. But and then obviously the context of when it occurs matters. But it's just I would love to see it more often at the very least. So I think th- what stands out the most is Cassius. Duke's closer, along with at times Trey, he didn't play the last 10 minutes. And it wasn't because of any sort of uh, how well he was playing and how well the team was playing. Because he actually, when you do the on-offs, he, he was, uh, Duke was actually better with him than Goldwire. And again, don't use that to just say, like, to make a big thing. But it is what it is. What the, so the stats say, and Cassius has been the closer. So what I, what I feel happened is just... That lineup was rolling, and K just went with it. Because, uh, let's say you go down in terms of the rotations. Because, uh, all right, so it starts out Trey Cassius, AOC, Moore, and Carey. That's who started out the second half. You got at 1658, you got Goldwire for AOC. Goldwire in, AOC out. 1222, Baker in, Wendell Moore out. 1014, Wendell Moore in, Cassius out. The only other was... 54 seconds left, Cassius in, Baker out. Besides that, it was just Vern and Javin kind of switching in and out, offense or defense and based on fouls and all that. So besides that, it was only four different substitutions. And really, in terms of the time that mattered, it was only three. It was Goldwire for, for AOC it's at 17 minutes, Baker for Moore at 12 minutes, and Moore for Cassius at 10:14. So how did you feel about Kay's decision to go Goldwire instead of uh, Cassius down the stretch. Um, yeah, I, I think it probably has to be just what you said, where that the team looked like they were performing well enough that they just kept it going. Um, yeah, it looked. It, that's the only thing I could really draw from that. I think uh, Javin and uh, Vern, they were they were both doing their thing at different times. And also, I, I do want to mention, they uh, played together, some versus Cuse. And I, I really liked how, how that went at times. I think they can play together versus uh, certain opponents. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, Kay, he's, uh, whether you want to call him hard-headed or just stubborn or smart or genius or all, all that stuff. I mean, obviously, the resume is what it is, if you would just want to use that and say, oh, I... Uh, Kay's a god. I, I worship Kay. Whatever he says goes. I'm not like that. It's, he's a basketball coach, bottom line. 100% respect for what he's done. I still think it's possible to question what he does without going too far in the extreme either way. And I don't know. I just I just worry. I mean, Boston College is not the most talented team. And when you and when you just play that same lineup, even when it's working, you don't like all of a sudden it can just become stagnant. That's what happened against Stephen F. Austin. That's what happened against Georgetown. That's what's happened. That's what happened against Louisville, and that's what has generally happened over the years. Whenever Duke in the tournament, and who knows? I'm not saying that's going to equal anything, but I just you, you want to know why it's something to keep in mind. Okay, let me let me see here. Let me let me go down. All right, so Duke's lowest offensive efficiencies of the season. I think the national average is like 102. So these are all these are all below that. 
84.8. I'm not even going to mention the number. This is just like Kansas is the lowest. Kansas, Boston College, Louisville, Clemson, Stephen F. Austin, Georgia State, Georgetown, and Georgia Tech. So those are, I believe that was, yeah, those are the eight lowest. So then you look at uh, games this season when the bench production has been below 20 points. These are, it, it equals out to 10 games. And anyone who wants to say Wendell, it's not, it's five with him, five without. So it actually, it works out pretty well. Um, so it's really not him or not him. It's, really, it's not just him or not him. So uh, Louisville, Stephen F. Austin, Pittsburgh, Georgetown, Georgia State, Clemson, Kansas, Georgia Tech, Cal, and Boston College. So there are 10 games when the bench has scored below 20 points. So you, you got Cal. Cal is the outlier. Duke annihilated Cal. Then you got Pittsburgh. And Pittsburgh is that game when I'm sure I was probably, I might have sounded more negative than many were uh, ready to hear from someone after a win. That game was like a blueprint to lose the NCAA tournament. I thought the stats, I think the offensive efficiency was really good. I didn't care. I didn't like the way that game went. And I explained exactly why. So I think even though Pittsburgh isn't one of those low off offensive efficiency games, I would still include it in the game I didn't like. All the other ones, they match up. So the lowest offensive efficiency games matches up almost exactly with just Cal and Pittsburgh. Those are the only outliers. Otherwise, they match up exactly. So, um, Andrew, the way... I hadn't mentioned this to you before. The way you hear that, is that me trying to create a narrative, or do you think there's something to that? No, I, I definitely think there's something to um, just an, a need for change and a need for uh, just to rotate things. I think in previous years, Duke has had guys that just work no matter what. I mean, Zion, no matter who he played, he was going to be very effective. This year, I mean, like we've talked about with Vernon, there's just guys that, against certain matchups don't work as well. There's not a Swiss Army knife that just always works. The closest thing is is Cassius, but um, you kind of have to tinker with lineups to find the one that just kind of unlocks the door, I guess, so to speak, um, and gets the job done against certain teams. Yeah, and I, and I know that can kind of, with context, you can say, oh, well, somebody from the bench, they can come in, have a big game, and then they just stay in the whole time. So they could still score a lot of points, but either way, it just proves Duke needs scoring from the bench. They can't just get away with it, like you said, how last year often they could because there was so much point production concentrated on such a, a kind of limited, um, excuse me, a limited amount of players. Now it can't be like that. I mean, I said, like, I, I a couple of episodes ago, I said Cassius and Trey are the only guys, no matter what, they're going to be in there. Now, I mean, after the last game, it's like, I guess it's just Trey. And, and that's not anything saying, like, oh, Cash is going to be benched. I think that was kind of an outlier game. And what, like I said, it was just the way things were going in that game. But at the same time, it's I, I can't ever imagine Trey just kind of sitting for the last 10 minutes of the game. It's just like I can't even picture that in my mind. Now watch, like, next yeah, game it'll happen, but who knows. All right. I think the, bi the biggest uh, game changer – well, okay – I would say the, the, biggest, the, the biggest negative in the first half, the, the word I've used with this Duke team more than anything about three-pointers, um, I know you've listened to the pod sometimes. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Do you remember the word that I've used more than anything else with what I'd like 
the way for to be uh, that Duke shoots threes? Uh, if, if not, that's fine. Was it judicious? That is exactly right. You know what? I didn't even set that up, Andrew. Good, good for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, judicious. Duke, I think they were they like 0 for 14 in the first half. When yep. I've given the stat plenty of times, when they shoot more than 23s, it is a horrific percentage in a game. When they shoot under 23s, much better. Obviously, this 1 for 15 game against BC is not going to help. I think they shot like 2 for 16 against Brown. Um, so it's kind of like you have – I mean, there's always going to be games that prove otherwise. But at the same time, like stop chucking. These halves where they just chuck and just don't even like – they don't run any offense. And sometimes it is because that like the other team takes away Vern and it's just like Duke doesn't have a plan B. Like, it, it has to stop. They need to find another way. And that's a, that's why I was so happy with Cuse. Cuse wants you to shoot threes. They they will almost dare you to shoot threes. Duke didn't. And I love that. But then BC, they did. So so when you have these games, like, it's always the first half. Like, a, a, against, um, I think, Miami. Like, Duke was just raining in the first half. Then against... Who was it? I think it was against Pittsburgh the first half where they shot like 7 of 14 and then they fell apart in the second half. These halves where they have like they, – they really are on fire. It almost works to the detriment sometimes in, in my opinion. And obviously I'm not saying I don't want three-pointers to go in. I'm not saying that. I just – I want them to try to get the best shot possible and be judicious with the attempts they take. And I did not think that was happening versus Boston College at all. I mean, 0-14, you should not be shooting 14 threes and a half, especially when you're not making any of them. I mean, I mean it was – so that I'd say that was the big thing in the first half. Um, it might not have been 14. What was the exact uh, – let's see, the amount. Uh, I don't know. I'll find out later. But either way. Um, all right, so I think the, the biggest game changer was when the BC just made a stupid move. I mean, if, if you're going to say who is the best – who is the most lethal weapon off the bench for Duke against a zone? Who would you think it is? Off the bench? Mm-hmm. Uh, Joey? Or yeah, Joey? Yeah, exactly. So BC hadn't played zone. Like, yeah, they were playing uh, man. That, I'm sorry? I was, gonna, I was just going to say that stood out to me when they went to zone. It was just so random. But continue, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. I mean, that, like, so exactly when he came in, that's when BC went zone. And so you got Duke. I mean, he is... I mean, it's it's not a big sample size, not even close. But he's still been insane against the zone. And you have a guy who has been struggling recently, so you have a defense where he can kind of pick his way, and he actually was able to create off the dribble twice. I think he had two and ones in a row. I mean, it was nuts. I think he missed a free throw on one, but either way. So he wasn't even doing it from deep. He actually did hit the one shot that extended Duke's three-point uh, record to – uh, whatever it is, a lot, yeah. <laughs> like thousand something. Um, but e- either way, I don't know what BC was thinking with that. I, 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 I go ahead. I was just gonna add to that. It didn't make sense from not even just the Joey Baker perspective, but just in general, it's not. It's not like Duke was all of a sudden playing well offensively and they had to counter it. It was like they Duke was still kind of struggling offensively, and they just switched something up for almost no reason. I don't know. Yeah, uh, like there was there was no there was no reason for it at all. It's almost like when Duke does that kind of one possession of zone every couple games coming out of a timeout and they always get beat. And guess what? That happened versus BC. So they, they I mean I had mentioned like will they play more zone on the last podcast because 
I mean, it was like 15 possessions, 20 points, even though I think against Kansas, I, I mentioned they played like four possessions, allowed like three points. So it wasn't even bad. They But they never played more than like two possessions in a game after Kansas. So it was always like one possession, the team would score, and then they would not play zone again. It was always just coming out of a timeout. So that's what happened versus BC. Uh, I think it was out of the uh, – it was a time – it was either the under-eight media or just a seven-minute timeout. Played it, got beat, allowed, allowed a score. So I was thinking, all right, that, that's, that's the usual Duke zone. Then they stayed in it, and that surprised me. It really did surprise me they stayed in it. At first I thought it was to protect Vern's uh, four fouls, but they even stayed in zone with Vern subbed out. And kind of Javin uh, manning the middle of the backside of the 2-3. And Duke was really using their extended wings really well. So I thought that worked I thought that worked re- really well. And uh, then I, I, I was uh, interested because I've always hoped, I mean, especially with Wendell back, uh, press more. I mean, Duke's great in the press. Why not press more? So I was like, oh, it's the, it's the Duke 2-2-1, three-quarters court press beginning basically around the same time as the zone. So I thought that was a big deal. Then it turned out I hadn't watched close enough because Kay, Kay said some really interesting things uh, after games this year. It's been pretty amusing at times, but uh, what did he say? Um, okay, we went into some, we went to something we put in during our bye week, Krzyzewski said. Some little change in defense. It's not a three-quarter court or a half court. It's in between, like a two-three, and I think that's supposed to be two-thirds. We call it a 22 and, you, and it can stand you up a little bit. I thought it stood Boston College up. That, that, I mean, I, like, I don't know. Like, I, I was told there'd be no math involved here, so I'm just confused in the first place. But either way, why why would a two-thirds be called a 22? I don't know. I, like, I haven't had time to totally rewatch everything. It was last night, but I, I, don't, I don't know what that, what that means. But uh, it was – so it was not a one – it was not a, a three-quarters court press, as Duke typically does, if not the full court. It was a two-thirds. So there you go. That's the way it officially is. And uh, and I, I will say Andrew has to leave in a couple minutes. So I just want to go uh, quickly roll through a couple more things. I, I, I have to. I have to mention some other K quotes because K, I've mentioned before on the pod, I, I really never paid attention to his postgame stuff until this season. And it is wild. He just says some very interesting things that sometimes, like, I don't even know what he's going on about. So, uh, quote, uh, they have a lot of adversity with me because they don't li- they didn't listen to me, Kay said in response to a question of how his young team handled adversity on the road, referring to his players not being locked in against the Eagles. So they're in trouble with me. That's the main adversity because it's stupid not to listen. So there's words of wisdom from Kay. I mean, I don't even know what that's about, but either way, like, that's crazy. Anyway, so here, here's, the, here's the winner right here. Uh, and this is from the Duke site. This is official Duke quotes. On if the defense got the offense going in the last eight minutes. It says, uh, yeah, we got a couple steals. We missed six shots by the bucket in the first eight minutes. Even at the end, we missed right by the bucket. When we're young, we try to shoot there. And when you're by the bucket, you don't try to shoot. You try to score. It's a big difference. If you're trying to shoot and there's the bucket, you, you might go here. You try to score. You're going in here, so you're either going to get the bucket, foul, or both. Here, shooting, you're not going to get a call because you haven't worked for it. It's not like we were getting fouled. We were shooting the ball, and what happens then is there's a lot of stuff underneath body-wise, and so you, if you're just shooting it, you're shooting at a moving target because you're going to be hit, whereas if you're trying to score, you're right there. Anyway, it makes <coughs> sense. I've been doing it for 45 years. There's a big difference between shooting and scoring by the bucket. Winning teams score the ball. 
They don't shoot the ball by the bucket, and we didn't do that tonight until late when Trey Jones got a couple. I have absolutely no idea what any of that means. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I read that. I'm just like, this is amazing. And, right. like, I can kind of I can kind of translate that into what I feel he means. It's not like I don't understand. But, man, that is – that that is something that was that was very that was very interesting. K K K post game credit to him. Um, all right, so uh, last thing, BC. I always say, let me let me find this real quick. I always say that you need the I don't want to say free points, but the extra points, bonus points. When you think about how are you going to get extra points, it's going to come from the fast break slash live ball transition. It's going to come from the three-point field goals. It's going to come from second-chance points, usually from offensive rebounds. And it's going to come from free throws. Those are the four areas when you can get the most amount of points that don't need to come from sets. Boston College, they didn't get any of them. Like, none. I mean, it is very, like, usually at least they can get something to kind of make up for another. But, man, no fast break, no, like, three-pointers, Second chance points, free throws. It was all, all bad. All bad. And it's just like, so when it comes down to it, my initial kind of thought about BC was honestly, I just think they were, I don't, I don't think that's worth, it's, it's not like these games where Duke may barely win or they might lose. And I'll just like deep dive everything. My initial thought about BC coming out of that game, like my initial thought even like during the game was like, dude, they're just, they're thinking about Carolina. I mean, it's just blatantly obvious to me. Maybe that wasn't true. Maybe I'm way off. And that's a, that's a possibility. I don't claim to know anything going on in their heads and I shouldn't have the right to. But the way they were playing against a team like that and just the environment, I think it all kind of worked together to make the energy was just... It wasn't there. so But at the same time, defense was good. I mean, like we talked about the zone. 11 possessions, 5 points for BC, 2 of 7 field goals. Duke was great in the zone. So that's why you can't go from like judging by these like 1 or 2 possessions per game. When they've played more than 1, it's only been – or when they played more than 2 possessions, it's only been 2 games versus BC and, uh, and Kansas. They've actually – it's looked good. Their press defense, 5 possessions, 0 points for BC. Hell yeah. So why don't they press more? Who knows? That, that'll be a forever question in my head. Uh, transition defense, 12 possessions, 6 points. I mean, again, like allowing a half-point possession, like Duke's kicking ass on defense. Boston College, not good, not good on offense. That's worth pointing out. But at the same time, Duke did play defense really well. And uh, at the same time, I mean, Matthew Hurt, it was, I mean, this is uh, – not the first time he's kind of just hasn't played the second half, and you get if, if he's not if he's not hitting. I mean, I've said this mul- multiple times. Uh, you texted it to me, and yeah, I mean, he needs to hit. That's why they run so many early plays for him, either like in a game or in the second half, because they really want to get him going. Because if he's not hitting shots, as cliche as that is, if he's not kind of making these shots, I, I just I'm not sure what else he provides. And this is just right now. This is what he is right now. This has nothing to do with his, the potential for what he will be. But for what he is right now, it can be tough to have him in there. It's so, uh, yeah, we'll see, we'll see how these matchups go. So Carolina, I said it last time, I'll say it again, do not care what their record is. 
do not care. And uh, Cole Anthony's come back, and it's it's always tough. As uh, I mean, it's not the same situation, but kind of the Kyrie Irving thing when a guy is really ball dominant. It's tough to get him. It's tough to get the chemistry back. And uh, UNC was actually starting to play better, and now I think Garrison Brooks he's had a really tough time kind of readjusting, but. They pose a threat. The energy is going to be nuts, even in the uh, wine and cheese deendom. So uh, I- I'm excited. And any, any thoughts uh, coming into North Carolina about uh, how what you're hoping for or anything, or just your just a thought on your fanhood in terms of how you view a Duke Carolina game? I mean, a Carolina game always feels like a little bit of a toss up, no matter what the record is. It's like the energy is going to be there and anything can happen because when a team goes on a run, I think that can just get magnified and a game can get out of hand really fast or a lead can dissipate in a very small time. It's just, it's never, it's just so rarely that a team just goes in and just dominates wire to wire. So um, you just have to expect a dog fight and obviously have to be ready for one of the best offensive point guards in basketball as much as he's been inefficient he's obviously very creative and um super aggressive yeah and i want to i want to add one more thing i haven't talked to like i just i haven't talked about trey enough and i'm not going to go into a whole thing about trey but he's been awesome i I just want to say that and especially when the offense bogs down a lot of it's been on his back he's he's really lived up to it he hasn't backed down from anything and especially with the lefty layups, that's something where school, being able to score with the opposite hand at the rim and uh, create and drive left. Uh, Trey's been awesome, and that is my fault. I did not talk nearly enough about Trey. Maybe it's because I assume just everyone knows, but that's no excuse. Trey deserves huge props. One of the best point guards in the country, finalist for the Bob Cousy Award. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he is uh, – May not be the, the vocal leader, but he is he is the guy that everyone looks to. He is kind of the guy who represents Duke this season to uh, to to pretty much on the national level. So either way, I mean, I, I say like the most fun I've ever had watching a game. It's still it's not even like I wouldn't even say it's one of the best Duke Carolina games. It's the ACC championship in 2011. I was at a bar. I think it was in Charlotte, and the whole the whole place was just packed with Duke Carolina fans. But it wasn't that like negativity that I think uh, some people love to pretend exists everywhere, but actually only exists on Twitter. It was just everyone was like, I mean, we were talking shit, but like it was all in good fun. It was so much fun. That's one of the best experiences I've ever had watching a game. And uh, a Duke Carolina game, there's nothing like it. Did I mention the, the stat? Because I mean, I got to mention the stat. I think everyone mentions the stat. But last 100 meetings. Tied 50 all, tied 7,746 points. Yeah, that, you, you can try to skew narratives many ways. This can't be skewed. That's nuts. Yeah, that that's a ridiculous, a ridiculous stat. I mean, I know in the past they have a few times used the stat where they choose kind of an odd number to make kind of a similar narrative happen. But when it's the last 100 games, I mean, that's... That's obviously crazy. I mean, it's the best rivalry in basketball. Or Absolutely. In, yeah, I mean, I would say NBA or college, but definitively the best in college. I don't think there's an argument. Yeah, I mean, with college, there's always less games. And anytime there's less games, 
it always matters more. It's like the NFL. Why is the NFL so so popular? Less games. I mean, it's not. I mean, besides the, just the, everything else involved, but there's just less games. And whenever there's less games, each game matters more. Bottom line. So, I would I would love to record after uh, Carolina. One one thing I have uh, got. You know what? I'm going to put him out there. Ray Holloman. He has told me he is going to record immediately after the Florida State game. We're going to do a uh, immediate post-game reaction pod. So now if it doesn't happen, everyone uh, tweet him and email him horrible, nasty thoughts because it'll be his fault. I'm just kidding. But, um, yeah, but I would love to record after the Carolina game as well. So email me if you're interested. Andrew, if you are, if you are interested, hopefully we can do it then. I will let you go now. But I think uh, we pretty much covered everything. It's been It was two very kind of polar opposite games. But either way, now, this is when, kind of on a, a national level, this is when everyone kind of used to say, this is when college basketball season begins. The first Duke Carolina game, and even though the records may be a little opposite from one another, uh, it doesn't take away from how excited I am and how excited I feel everyone else is for this game. So, for Andrew Clark, I am Adam Comer. Thanks so much for listening to the Duke Basketball Corner podcast. I'll be talking to you soon.